Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so last week, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 11 and 12 today. And where we left last week in 1 Samuel 10, Saul had just been anointed as king. Saul was the first king of Israel. And when he was anointed, there was no precedent for what, was gonna, what, a, what having a king in Israel was going to be like. And so when we end 10 and we begin 11, we have this new king in Israel, but there's no uh, palace, there's no crown, uh, there's no army, there's not even a job description. So what does this new king do? And what is the political climate at the time? What's going on in the surrounding nations? What work is this king going to have to do? And what are the surrounding nations who have kings now like Israel How are they going to react to Israel having a king? We are coming at the end of about a 300-year period of history where the Israelites have come into the promised land and they have been ruled by this thing called judges. Judges are essentially kind of military leaders that rise up and help overcome the enemy. They kind of help Israel live in a way that's holy, but a lot of times the judges ended up being um, unrighteous at the end of their reign anyway. So it was kind of a bizarre period of time in the book of Judges, and then when Judges ends, 1 Samuel begins with Eli as a judge. He's essentially one of the last judges. Samuel steps up in in the role of a judge, but now we've got a period of time of transition, and that's kind of where we are in 1 Samuel 11. The period of the judges has officially come to an end. Israel now has a king, and we've got to figure out what this king is going to do. What's he like? So with that in mind, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll read through probably about verse 7, and then we're going to pause and reflect because there's a lot of political stuff going on, and I don't want you to get lost in what's happening. So 1 Samuel 11, 1, it says, Then Nahash... The Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Well, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, then we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept out loud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces 
and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. All right. So the chapter opens with some new locations and some new leaders. So to help orient us, I got a map. Now we're gonna start, will you pause the map right there? We're gonna start here on planet Earth, and the region we're gonna be zooming in on is the Middle East, but just for a moment, I want you to kind of soak in what we're looking at. This is a map of the current lay of the land. You've got Saudi Arabia, Iraq, you've got Jordan, Israel, Egypt. If you don't know where those places are, I can't help you at this moment, but you can go back in and look up uh, an atlas. But I kinda wanna give you a sense for what countries are positioned so that when we zoom in, you get a sense of what peoples we're talking about and where those countries might be today. Because all of this land is still there, the um, lines for where the countries are are a little bit different, but it's essentially some of the same people. So if you'll go forward and zoom in, we're gonna have a little area, we're gonna zoom in right there. All right, so what we're looking at here is Israel. Now it's not just Israel, based off of that last map, it's also Israel and a little bit of Jordan. That big body of water that you see labeled the Dead Sea, uh, and that word Amon over to the right, that's uh, current, uh, the current country of Jordan, and everything to the left is essentially Israel. You've got the Mediterranean Sea, so that's kind of the lay of the land. And when we start off in the story, we find out that there's this guy named Nahash. Now, Nahash in Hebrew means serpent. So we already know from the beginning, this is not a good guy. Before he starts asking for everyone's right eye, we already know he's not a good guy. This dude's a serpent, not an actual serpent. He's, an, he's a human, but he goes, he's, he's a serpent. He's a snake. And he is going through the land, conquering everything east of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. The Jordan River is that blue line that extends above the Dead Sea, and it goes up north into the Sea of Galilee. But that little area labeled Ammon, that is the region that this guy, Nahash, is the king over. Now, if you're familiar with biblical history, Ammon has an interesting past. The people of Ammon have their history traced back to a guy named Lot. Do you remember Lot? Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. God told him to get out because he was gonna destroy the city. He got out, his wife really didn't wanna get out. She turned back and looked at the city as the city was being destroyed and we're told that she turned into a pillar of salt. So Lot and his daughters are left. They go and hide in this cave. His daughters get his Lot drunk one night and uh, they have relations with their dad and the byproduct of that night is two people groups. Ammon and Moab. The Ammonites and the Moabites, that is their descendants. Now, the Moabites are south of Ammon, just so you know, it's kind of like the bottom right of where, where that map would be. Not important for today, but just so you know. The Ammonites have a rich history of um, sin, as we shall say. And this extends into the current king, Nahash. He has this desire to want to come in and crush Israel and take cities one by one. 
Now you're probably thinking, I thought you said Israel was everything to the left of the Dead Sea, when kind of remember Joshua crossing over the Jordan, how come there's still tribes over on the east and not, on the, uh, and, and not only on the west? Well, there were a couple tribes in Joshua who asked Joshua, they actually asked Moses, but they asked Joshua, um, can we not cross over to the Jordan? Like the land here is just so pretty. Can we not cross over and get into war with the peoples over in that area? Can we just stay here? And so the tribe of Manasseh was actually split. So there was half of Manasseh that lived on the east side of the Jordan River, and the west side was the other half side of Manasseh. There were other couple tribes that lived on the east, but Manasseh was the largest, and one of the cities in Manasseh was this city called Jabesh Gilead. So the Ammonite king says, I want land. I want to conquer some areas. So he comes in to Jabesh Gilead, and we find out that his desire is to conquer this city, and it, it, this is interesting. Like when we start in 1 Samuel 11, the verse just kind of starts in 1 Samuel 11, um, but there's actually, I told you last week about the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was this archeological discovery back in like around the 1950s, um, where all of these really old versions of the text had been discovered. Well, one of the versions of 1 Samuel that was discovered had an extra paragraph. It wasn't actually scripture, but it was kind of like a hidden written note just above chapter, one, uh, chapter 11, verse one, that gave some more context about this guy named Nahash. And what it said was that, leading up into the story, that Nahash wasn't just interested in Jabesh Gilead. He had actually started a campaign over all of the region east of the Jordan and had conquered at this time most of Reuben and most of the tribe of Gad, and there was not a man on the right side or the east side of the Jordan that had their left eye or that had their right eye still. So we, we jump into the story and we're like, okay, well, he just wants one city. No, this is one city in a multitude of cities this guy has been conquering. So he comes in and he, and he wants another city and the city cries out, um, please, will you give us seven days to go see if we can find some help to tell you no? And Nahash, in his pride, gives it to him. Sure, of course, take all the time you need because he knows no one is going to rally behind him, because up until this point, there's only been judges, and they haven't been really that good, and Nahash has already conquered lots of land, so he's not afraid. So the men of Jabesh-Gilead send an envoy down to Gibeah. Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin, and Gibeah is the hometown of Saul. This is where Saul is living at the time. There's no um, palace for him to live in, and what we find him doing is actually farming. He's out in the field, just plowing the field with some oxen. It's kind of fascinating to see that the new king of Israel, what is he doing? He just went back to farming because there's no work to do. He didn't have a job description. And the news comes and everyone in Gibeah starts crying out, oh my gosh, this is bad news. They're coming for Jabesh Gilead. That city's pretty close to the Jordan River. If they cross over, Nahash is gonna take over the whole country. Everyone starts freaking out. So Saul comes, you know, with his oxen, he comes, hey, why is, why is everybody freaking out? What's going on? Why is everybody crying? And they tell Saul, and Saul, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he does something really peculiar. He takes one of the ox that had been attached to um, his apparatus that he was plowing his field with, and he takes it, and he kills the oxen. 
And we're told that he chops the oxen up into multiple little pieces and he sends the pieces all across the tribes of Israel with a message. Come and rally behind Saul and Samuel to fight against Nahash and the Ammonites. To defend Jabesh Gilead and if you don't, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. Now, when I read this story, a couple things stand out to me. The Spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul and his response, everyone is freaking out, and his response when the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him is to take an oxen and cut it up into multiple little pieces. And then we're told that the dread of the Lord fell on the people when they got Saul's message. What is going on? Why did Saul chop an oxen up into multiple pieces? And why did that message bring the dread of the Lord on the people? I want to go back in history and fill this in for you because the reason why I'm doing this, and I'm just going to be honest with you, it's about to get a little bit graphic. But I want you to understand this is in your Bible and there's a reason why Saul did this and I want you to understand the connections within the community of what we're about to discover. When we started 1 Samuel, I told you this whole story is in the context of a community with real people, with real names, with a real history. And the history I'm about to tell you is only about 50 years old from this moment here. The moment Saul chops up this oxen, the reason why he does it is rooted in something happened that, that happened less than 50 years earlier. So in order to understand what's going on, you have to go back to Judges 19 through 21. Now, if you were here while we went through our Judges series, some of this might be familiar, some of it, probably you're not walking around with this on the top of your head, so we're gonna rediscover it a little bit. I won't read through it, but I wanna summarize it to you. Judges 19 through 21 tells the story of a Levite who had a concubine. Already from the beginning of the story, things are off, okay? Chapter 19 begins with this idea that there was no king in Israel at the time and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's this Levite who's supposed to be a priest. He has a concubine, not a wife, a concubine. And I guess he loves this concubine, but this concubine I guess doesn't love him because we're told in the beginning of 19 she cheats on him and then runs away. So the Levite goes to find her and the first place he looks is her father's home. So he travels up through the hill country of um, um, Ephraim, and he goes to his concubine's home, his dad's home, and he says, hey, um, I'm here for my wife. And I use that term loosely. And he says, no, no, come on in. So the father shows unbelievable hospitality, invites him in for a meal, and, and you can tell what the father's doing. He's trying to calm everything. And so it, it soothes the situation. Levite's not really mad anymore, and, and the girl's there, and so they'd spend the night, and the next day, the Levite and the concubine tried to leave, and the father's like, no, 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 it's so late, stay another day. And so they stay another day. Well, this happens like five different times. And finally, on the last night, the Levite's like, no, we have to go home. And so the father says, but it's so late. Why don't you stay one more night? And he's like, no, I'm up to your tricks. We're gonna leave. So the Levite and the concubine leave just as the sun is starting to set. And as they're heading home, they can't quite make it home, and they have to make a decision. Where are they going to spend the night? Well, the Levite has a servant with him, and the servant suggests, well, why don't we stay in Jerusalem? There's one problem. Jerusalem is controlled by the Jebusites at this time. 
So the Levite says, well, I don't want to stay in a foreign town. They're not going to be hospitable. Let's stay in a, in a town that it's got, it's got Israelites in it. What's the nearest town that's got Israelites in it that'll be hospitable to us? <gasps> Gibeah. So the Levite and the concubine and his servant, they go to Gibeah and they show up and it's dark and they find that the, the, the people of Gibeah, they aren't actually that hospitable. No one invites them into their home. And so they're sitting out in the middle of the city, just gonna, I guess they're just gonna camp out uh, that night. And as they're kind of setting things up to camp out, an old man walks up and says, hey, what are you guys doing here? He says, oh, we're, we're visitors. And the old man says, you don't, you don't wanna spend night outside out here. Like, uh, you wanna come to my house. So the old man invites him in and makes him a dinner and they're all having a good time. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. And the old man goes and he opens the door and it's a replay of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a mob of men outside and they're demanding that the Levite come out so they can sexually assault him. Well, the man says, no, this guy is a visitor in my home. Please, please don't. Well, in the middle of the scuffle, the concubine gets pulled outside and we're told that all night long she was sexually assaulted. And the next morning, she comes crawling back to the house. Levite opens the door and sees his concubine, almost dead, and says, let's go home. Puts her on a donkey, starts heading home, and as they start heading home, she dies. When the Levite gets home, he is so enraged at the hospitality that Gibeah did not show that he takes his dead concubine's body and he chops it up into little pieces. And he sends the pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel with a message. Who is going to avenge me? This enrages all of Israel because Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin and Benjamin should have known better. So everyone rallies, all of Israel, all 12 tribes rally, and they go to Benjamin and they say, this is one of the largest armies ever in scripture that's rallied up to this point. Almost 400,000 men rally for war against Benjamin. They come and they say, give us the men of Gibeah who did this. And the tribe, the men of Benjamin say, we're not giving you our people. You can't have them. And at that point, the war of Gibeah breaks out. And the first couple days, Benjamin's doing pretty good. Benjamin conquers Israel and kills 20,000 men on the first day, 22,000 men on the second day. On the third day, Israel's like, you know, we've had enough of this. Let's go to the Lord and see what he wants to do. And the assignment for the Lord is send everybody. And they did. And they whooped Benjamin. They killed every person in Benjamin, save 600 men who ran away and hid in a cave. And at this point, Israel's realizing what they've done. We've wiped out an entire tribe. This is one of God's people. We brought some serious judgment down. How is Benjamin going to continue as a tribe if they don't have any wives? We've got 600 guys hanging out in a cave. How is Benjamin gonna survive? Well, they all gather back together at a place we're familiar with now, Mizpah. And they cry out to the Lord, what are we gonna do? And they make a pact. Well, we're not gonna give our daughters to those guys. So what are we gonna do? Well, what tribe or what city didn't show up to the war when the Levites sent the, the parts of this girl's body across the country? Well, there's one town that didn't show up, Jabesh Gilead. 
So what does, I, what does Israel decide to do? Israel says, let's go raid Jabesh Gilead as a punishment for not joining us in war. Let's kill all the men, all the women who are married to the men, all the little children, and we'll find just the virgin women who have not been given into marriage, and we'll make them marry those 600 Benjamin guys hiding out in a cave. And the whole story ends with this line. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book ends that way and then we start into 1 Samuel and all of a sudden we see things starting to churn and Samuel rises up and now we got this new guy named Saul. There's only one problem. Saul's a Benjamite and his hometown is Gibeah. His ancestors are linked to those 600 guys in that cave. And his ancestors are also linked to the pillage of that city, Jabesh Gilead. So Saul is confronted with an opportunity and a heartbreak. This is why everyone is weeping because they know the history of these two towns because it isn't that, past in the, uh, isn't that long ago in their past. There are men in Gibeah who were still alive that remember this war. And now the news comes, hey, remember that town that we ravaged in order to have spouses? Now it's under plunder by a foreign king. And Saul has an opportunity. And the opportunity is to do the right thing and restore honor to your hometown by defending the oppressed city that you plundered just 50 years before and also take the advantage of solidifying yourself as the new king, and this is the kind of kingdom that you have. You're not the kind of king like the judges of old that would pillage a city just to, 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 to commit a sin, just to fix a sin that was already previously committed. You're not the kind of king who's going to sacrifice one city to save another city. No, you're a kind of person, the kind of king that wants to bring restitution and unite the nations in a way that they haven't been united since the time of Joshua. So what does he do? How does he drive home his message to the people about how important it is to rally behind this city that had been plundered just 50 years before? He takes an oxen and he chops it up into little bits and he sends the bits across to Israel. See, without this story, you just get, I don't know, like the hindquarter of an oxen in the mail and you're like, I don't know, is this dinner? What, is, what does this mean? but not if you were living in Israel in this time. If you were living in Israel in this time and you got that mail, you knew exactly the history tied to that hindquarter of that oxen. You were struck with dread. And what was the response? How did everybody respond to the symbolic gesture that Saul did? Everybody showed up for war. Guess what? Not a single tribe stayed home. This is the second largest gathering of the entire army of Israel up until this point. The only other larger one was Judges 19 through 21. So, the question is, did the message work? Did it firmly establish his role as a leader? 
and one who was wise enough to understand the symbolism that would draw his people into actual action? Well, let's read. Go to verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you you may do to us whatever seems good. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, who is it that said Saul, who is it that said shall Saul reign over us? It's a call back from Last chapter when Saul was anointed as king, a few men said, is this guy gonna lead us? He looks like a lousy leader. A group of men after this battle said, where are those guys that said that? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the illustration worked. It gathered one of the largest armies in Israel's history up until this point. It established Saul's role as a king and also as a merciful leader. And it restored the honor of his hometown and it united the kingdom. It brought Samuel to a place where it says, okay, looks like things are starting to change around here. Now we're not a divided kingdom with tribes over here and cities over here. and We're gonna take advantage of this guy so we can save these guys. No, we're one kingdom again and we're united under this king named Saul. So let's get together and have a renewal ceremony. And Samuel's wise, he's a, he's a man given to symbolism. You remember Ebenezer a few chapters back? Well, he says, everybody gather at Gilgal. What's so special about Gilgal? Gilgal was the city that Israel celebrated the first Passover in when they crossed the Jordan River. Under Joshua's leadership, they crossed the Jordan River, all two million of them. They gathered at Gilgal and Joshua says, right here, we're gonna celebrate Passover and it's a new day for the people of God. Samuel says, today seems like a new day for the people of God. So let's gather together at the same place, let's make it a symbolic gesture, and let's have a time of renewal. But there's one thing about Samuel. It was a new day, and victories are great, and unity is great, and renewal is great, and rededications are great, but Samuel's worried about something. Is this renewal gonna last? Because Israel has a long history of having these moments where they're confronted with their sin, They repent of their sin, things change, and all of a sudden they go back to the way things were. This is the story of the entire book of Judges. Up until this point, this was the entire history of Israel. We come into the promised land, God gives us this freedom, and we use this freedom to fill the land with idols. 
and to serve our own purposes and to be our own gods and to be our own people and to lead our own way and ignore the God who gave us this freedom. And then God gives them over into slavery. Those idols become slaves to them. The foreign kings come in, start enslaving them. And then they cry out to God, God, give us freedom. And God raises up a leader and gives them freedom. And then what do they do with that freedom? They go right back into sin again. And it's over and over and over for 21 chapters in the book of Judges. And so Samuel, the last judge, is concerned. We've come to a renewal, things are good, we're all rallied, a lot of people showed up, Jabez Gilead is back on the scene, uh, Gibeah, it's a, new, it's a new day, things are better, but Samuel's concerned. Is this renewal that we're about to have gonna last longer than seven days? Is it gonna last longer than one chapter? What happens when the taste of blood on your lips leaves the next morning? Will you still have the same desire to be faithful to your God when you can't taste that war on your lips? Will you have the same desire to want to give compassion to one another in a gathering the next day when you're not at the gathering? Praise God for good Sunday morning services, but what about Monday mornings? What about Thursday afternoons? What about Saturday night? This is what Samuel's concerned with, and any good prophet is concerned with it. Because the people of God can be moved to transformation, their spirit can be moved, their emotions can be stirred, and the next day they can forget. So Samuel wants to gather the people and make a big deal out of a big renewal ceremony, but he has some very difficult words he wants to share with them. But he says that he brings the words across in a very, very unique and creative way. Let's go to chapter 12, verse one. So they gather together at Gilgal, and Samuel says to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made, made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken and whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded and whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and has anointed his witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is a witness. So the, uh, God is my witness. Y'all are saying that I have not done anything against you. The Lord sees what you're saying. So our slate is clear. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So during the rededication ceremony, Samuel asks the people a question. Have I lived in an honorable way as a prophet before you? Is there anything that I have done that has offended you? Do I have any debt with anyone? And the answer was no, and his character was clean. But Samuel knew that his character was clean. 
Why did Samuel go through the effort of asking the people, do I have a clean slate with you, if he knew he had a clean slate with them? Because he was about to deliver a very difficult message. And Samuel understood that tough messages are best delivered when there is no noise of debt or offense standing in the way. Samuel is about to bring a very tough word, and he understands that in order for the people to hear the word, there has to be nothing in between. There can't be somebody in the audience thinking, ah, Samuel, I hear what you're saying, but I saw what you posted on Facebook the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear, you. I hear what you're about to say, Samuel, but you, do, you, you did borrow my tractor and you haven't returned it yet. I gave you a chainsaw last year, and when you returned it, you broke it. And you didn't say anything about it, and I didn't say anything about it. Samuel understands this really important leadership principle. That in order to have tough conversations, in order to bring correction, in order to ex expose things that need to be exposed, to, 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 to critique something, to, to bring some area of transformation, there has to be a clean slate because if there's not, the moment the issue is brought up, the other person can't hear the real issue and they can't hear your heart because there's an offense in the way. This is why when I was walking through the guys to the pastoral candidacy process, one of the first things I told, the best thing that you can do is just get off social media. You wanna have the honor of preaching God's word to God's people, stop posting things online. Because you don't know where people are, and the moment you stand up there and try to preach God's word, all they can hear is what they read from you two weeks earlier. And maybe it reinforces them and says, yeah, this is the kind of guy I can listen to. Or maybe it challenges them to say, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. Like, his morals are out of whack. His politics are out of whack. What he thinks about education is out of whack. I can't agree with this guy on this specific issue. And it robs them of the ability to hear the word of God clearly because there's an offense or there's an issue. Saul Samuel understands this principle. He understands the principle. I've used this numerous times, but I think it's helpful here. So forgive me for repeating myself. But Samuel understands that relationships are like bank accounts. That if you, on a regular basis in that relationship, things like kind words and kind gestures and going out of your way to, to, to help somebody, to serve one, those are kind of like making deposits into that relationship. And one day, something might happen with your close friend, you're like, mm. I'm gonna have to say something to this person because like morally they're out of whack or their belief system is off and you're gonna to have to say something tough to them, and it's gonna be like making a withdrawal from that relationship account. And if you don't have enough deposits, you're gonna overdraft. And you're gonna find that whatever you say, it's just gonna land flat because either there's too much debt, there's too much offense, they won't hear what you have to say, or they're gonna look at you and say, who are you to say that to me? This is, the, this is why it's so important for us to build relationships in the context of community. Because one of the things we're told to do is to bring correction to one another when we see sin, but not just walk around shooting everybody at something we might think looks like maybe, possibly, needing correction. You live so close to somebody, you know when something needs correction, when the enemy is trying to drive a wedge. You can tell the difference. Samuel understands this. 
And this is what he's doing. He's leveraging the reality that he has lived in such a way that there is no issue between him and the people and that earns him the right to say a tough thing and the people will hear it. Let's go to verse eight. So he starts with a reminder of God and what kind of, what kind of character God has and, and, and how he's been working in the people of Israel. He says, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent uh, Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place, but they forgot their God. This is the cycle of judges I was telling you about. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, that's Judges 4, 2, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines in Judges 10, 7, and 13, and 1, and into the hand of the king of Moab, Judges 3, 12, and they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and now deliver us out of the hands of the enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubabel and Barak and Yiftach and Samuel delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And then when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came up against you, you said, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, like you have been the entire book of Judges, and you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Let's pause right there. So this is the tough message that Samuel has to say to the people. You guys are the worst. <laughs> you see why he cleared his, he cleared his, uh, his, uh, his debt? Because he had to say something. Look, here's a reality check. You guys are a nightmare of a people. You're stiff-necked, you don't listen. Every time you get freedom, you go right back into sin. You use your freedom to find creative ways to sin in new, in new ways. And then when you, when you find that sin, oh my gosh, it led to bondage, I didn't know that was gonna happen. You cry out to the Lord and he sets you free. And you use that freedom to go right back into sin. And now you think that some new political structure is gonna bring you some kind of freedom you didn't have in the past. You're convinced that now having a king, this guy, this leader, is now gonna be your savior. You thought that like, oh man, well, we just haven't had the right leader, we haven't had the right structure. If we can get a king like everybody else, then we'd be free. Same as like, it's, no, you guys are idiots. That's the message. <laughs> Fools. You've gathered together for a time of renewal, a ceremony of rededication, and before you do it, I need you to understand how foolish you are. You think that this guy is gonna solve your problems, but your problem isn't him. You don't have a leadership problem, you have a submission problem. Which is interesting, because when you look at the church, most churches today, they're not in good shape. And we like to think, well, man, it's a leadership problem. And a lot of it is, but the question we have to ask is, did we get to that leadership problem because we had a people obedient problem? 
Didn't we, if we're honest with ourselves, come to a place where church committees who were looking for pastors, they wanted somebody that was more charismatic than, than somebody who had character? If we're honest with ourselves, don't we want somebody who's funny rather than biblically wise? Don't we want somebody who's tall and handsome rather than somebody who, who holds the people of God to account according to the word of God? Don't we want somebody who's going to lead our organizations and, and expand and build our campus and, 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 and bring more people in so we can have more influence? You don't see that anywhere in the book of Acts. That's not early church. And so how did we get here? Well, we got here the same way the, the people of Israel got to where they were. They were convinced that the way to solve their problems was to find a new guy to lead, a way, to lead in a new way, rather than submit to a God who says, if you just follow my way, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't, my hand is going to be against you. But either way, it's going to be me, either blessing you or standing in your way. You can't get rid of me. Your problems are not leadership problems. Your problems are me problems. You're not looking at me. That's a tough word. And Samuel ends it with this. I'm going to prove to you that these are not just my words. God is going to do something miraculous. Let's pick it up in verse 17. He says, is it not harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you will know and see that your wickedness is great, that you have done in the sight of the Lord and in your asking yourselves for a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves for a king. Pause right there. To authenticate Samuel's words, the Lord sent rain. Okay, well, I don't understand that because we're not in the farming culture. I don't understand why that's such a big deal. It's harvest day, which means Israel has officially gone into the dry season in their part of the world. It doesn't rain during this time. In fact, the harvest has already grown. It's white. Right after this, everyone's going to the field to start picking the wheat. So what happens if your crop is full and the wheat and the stalk is it's ready to go? What happens if you have rain on that day? All of a sudden, the rain starts hitting the ground and it destroys the wheat crop. It ruins the top of the head of the wheat. It decimates the crop. This is on par to God sending snow in Tallahassee in August. That's what it would feel like. Something on the scale of a climate event that would just make you pause and say, wow, we serve a God who does things that I have no power or control over and so I need to serve him and not these false gods who can't do that kind of stuff. If he could send the rain to bring the harvest and then the day I'm supposed to bring it in, wash it all away, I have a God problem, not a wheat problem. 
I have a God problem, not a leadership problem. I have a God problem, not a theology or, or an issue with other religions or a money problem or whatever problem you want to think that you're going through. Like if I could just get this one thing in my life solved, everything would fall into line. I got bad news for you. The moment that gets solved, nothing changes because he brought that calamity upon you in order to get your attention. Because there is one thing that we are not considering, and that is the God of the universe and his desire for us to walk in obedience to him. And when you do, there's blessing. And when you don't, his hand is against you. Well, this message, it sunk in deep and the people cried out, we have done an evil thing in asking for a king. Verse 20, it says, Samuel said to the people, guys, don't be afraid. What a weird pivot, right? You'd think Samuel would want to strike while the iron's hot. Yeah, now let's get rid of Saul. Let's go back to just trusting the Lord as your king. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He says, don't, don't be afraid. You have done all of this evil. You're guilty. But do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. Grace, mercy. We think the prophets only speak judgment. They speak a lot of judgment, but they speak mercy. Yes, you're guilty, but I've got good news. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver because they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. But here's the good and the right way. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away both you and your king. Now don't forget where this is at. They're at Gilgal, they're at renewal ceremony, they've all gathered together and they're making a decision to start things new. But Samuel has a word of caution. Guys, this isn't the first time we've been here. There seems to be a pattern where you become aware of your sin, you turn to the Lord, we all seem to be gathered in a group of people, your hearts cry out, we pour out the water, everybody's all boo-hoo, and then you go home and then you forget. Sunday morning is great. It's just, Sunday mornings look just like this. It's a gathering of God's people. Everyone's coming together. Sometimes there's snot and there's crying and there's tears and there's hands raised and there's sometimes there's just, there's this stillness where you just say, I've done wrong and I need to change. And it's great and you hear the word of God proclaimed and you're like, yeah, that's true, that's me. And the message sounds very similar to what Samuel is saying. You're unfaithful and you live in fear and you're giving yourself to empty things and you're forging your identity with sorrow and you're walking dangerous paths, giving yourselves these ancient habits of sin. But then the prophet stands and says, I have good news. And the Holy Spirit says to you today, I have good news. All those things are true. Yes, you're afraid. Yes, you're walking in fear. Yes, you're paralyzed by your decisions and that's why you can't decide what you're gonna do next. But I have good news. 
You can change. You can be transformed. You, can, you, you don't have to live like that anymore. That's the good news. Everything up until this point is true, but doesn't have to be true from this point forward. Today is the day to make some changes, to ask the Lord to give you new desires so that you don't have those old desires anymore, to give you new habits so you don't have those old habits anymore, to give you desire to want to read the Word. Today is a good day for us to gather together and for, to hear the Holy Spirit speak through the prophet Samuel that says, today is the day where you need to start reading the Bible more. Yes, I feel that in my bones. I don't read the word of God enough. I'm unfamiliar with prayer. I don't know how to do it. Today's a good day to start. I need to explore fasting. I should take some time to worship on my own when I'm not gathered together in a corporate setting. It's good to sing the praises of God. I need to start getting serious about committing scripture to memory. This is where we all make the decisions. We gather together, yep, today's the day. I need to start making some different changes and then tomorrow comes. Or Wednesday comes or Saturday night comes. And this is the warning of Samuel. Everything that the prophet is speaking, that the Holy Spirit is speaking today about the way you've been living your life, it's all true. Don't run from it. Feel the weight and the dread of the sin that you so easily partake in and don't make a big deal of. And then realize that in his mercy, he has gathered his people to get today in the same way that he did in 1 Samuel 12. And today is a day of renewal. It's a, it, today, this gathering, it's a ceremony. Today is the perfect day for you to make a decision that things are gonna go different. But the decision can't stick with today. It makes no difference for you to sit here and say, yeah, I gotta get some serious about some stuff. And then tomorrow morning, you're like, I don't remember what those stuff were. Maybe next Sunday. The message of 1 Samuel 11 and 12 is the message that Samuel was trying to get the people of Israel to wake up. We are a people who are prone to forget and it's just not good enough for us to gather together and say, that was a good service. I'm gonna make some changes and then tomorrow forget what those changes are. If you really want to turn to the Lord, if you are serious about taking him seriously, about treasuring him above all other things, you have to start making decisions that extend past the next five, five minutes. You have to make a decision to change some things in your life so that your finances look different and your calendar looks different and your words, they sound different and your thought life is different. You have to make a decision that will last the next six months, the next year, the next 10 years. You have to start making decisions, not out of the emotion of the moment, but out of the conviction that God changes and transforms his people, and it doesn't stop today. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.